You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the lives of faithful Old Testament believers. We're calling By Faith. With this week's message, here's education pastor Nolan Smith. Well, in the fall of 2012, one of the most popular athletes in America was a young man by the name of Manti Teo. And I, I bring that name up, and some of you are, are familiar with the story. You, you, you kind of remember what happened. But, but Teo was, was known not only for being an incredibly gifted athlete on the field, but for some things that were going on in his life off the field that year. He, he had lost his grandmother, and then tragically in the middle of that football season, he, he lost his, his 22-year-old girlfriend in a car accident. And, and so he really gained a lot of attention over the course of this season as he was experiencing these harrowing events and, and continuing to go out week in, week in and week out and, and perform at a high level. And he, he gained a lot of fans, a lot of people cheering him on in the process. And, and I, I remember one day in January the following year, I, I got on social media one morning and I started scrolling through and I, and I started seeing these words like fake girlfriend and hoax. And I came across this really roller coaster of an article that, that chronicled all the events of, of this whole ordeal. And, and it, it comes to light that this girlfriend that, that Teow had supposedly lost never actually existed. And, and what we find out is, is that he had been what we call catfished, which is when somebody poses online as a different person, they create this persona and they trick somebody into this relationship to exploit them for money or, or influence or whatever. And, and so Teal had been a victim of that. And, and so as you can imagine, whatever attention he was getting when everybody believed him, he got about 10 times more attention after this all came out. And, and so this has recently come back up again because uh, a documentary about this whole story just came out in the last couple of weeks and people are talking about it again. And, and you're getting to hear in this documentary his side of the story and what was going on. And, and you come to realize just how difficult it was for him after that happened, how, how much this event actually followed him around. Everywhere he went, it was what people talked about. It was what he was known for. It was an embarrassment, and he couldn't shake it. Uh, I saw one person post recently. They said very poignantly, I thought, uh, that we all owe Manti Teo an apology, that his life had become so difficult because of what had happened, because of this embarrassing thing that got attached to him, that he was now known for this wherever he went. And I think that as we think about our own lives, we've all had embarrassing moments. Hopefully none nearly as public as this one. And, and, and maybe you even faked a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I don't know. But, uh, but we've all had embarrassing moments. And we've all had things that we would hope don't follow us around. Things that, that, that we hope we're not known for everywhere that we go. That they, these don't define our reputation. But what we're going to see in our passage today is we're going to see somebody who was known for something very specific, something very unflattering, something that she certainly would not have wanted to be known for. But we're going to see in this passage how God viewed this person and what he was able to do through her. Now, I think it's helpful for us anytime we open a passage of Scripture to, to understand where it fits in in the greater biblical narrative. Because sometimes we can sort of get lost in the details, right? We start to lose the forest through the trees. And so we wanna understand where does this passage that we're gonna read fit into this narrative of scripture? Because we believe that the Bible is a unified 
story from beginning to end, that it tells a story, and, and as we read these passages, they fit somewhere within that. And I use the word story, and I want to be careful, and I want to be clear that I'm not saying story in the sense of a fairy tale or a fable, something made up. I'm talking about something true, an historical account, but it's told to us in the form of a story. And so today's passage, at the risk of causing some confusion, you might think of it as a story within a story within the story. You'll see what I mean here, here soon because uh, what we're going to look at is events that happened within the story we looked at last week. So last week, Caleb took us through uh, the story of Jericho and, and the fall of Jericho, that God sent his army into Jericho. He brought down the walls of Jericho miraculously, and then they were able to overtake Jericho. And so we're going to look at that story again, but, but again, something that happened there within it. And as we do that, if you remember last week, it, it, it poses some, some difficult questions for us, right? That, that we have God commissioning violence, and I think for all of us, that, that just creates some tension, and we go, God, what, what's going on here? Like, how, how, are you, how are you still good? How are you still trustworthy? And yet, you're somebody who commissions violence against people. And anytime we have passages like this that present difficulty, I think there's two things that we need to remember. Two things that I want us to keep in mind as we go into this passage today. The first is this, is that the God that we're looking at today is the very same God who in weeks past, as we've looked through these, these different stories in the Bible, this is the same God who took Abraham and raised up Abraham and said, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna through your lineage, raise up a great nation, that your descendants are gonna be a great nation, and, and I'm gonna bless the whole world through your descendants. That that's what God wanted to do with Abraham's family. This is the same God who generations later, when those people, the Israelites, were in captivity, they were slaves in Egypt, raised up a man named Moses in the very house of the one who enslaved those people to lead them out of slavery, to lead them through the, red, the parted Red Sea, the waters of baptism, out into the other side, into freedom. And when they were wandering through the wilderness, and God presented to them the Ten Commandments, and there he would make this covenant with them. The God who made a covenant to say, you are going to be my people, I'm going to be your God. And that relationship, while it was exclusive to Israel, it was not just for Israel, it was for everyone. That what he was going to do in that relationship with Israel was to display who he was for all to see. And I want us to remember that it's that God that we're going to see today. The other thing that I think we need to remember is who God tells us that he is. That, that in scripture, God tells us his heart and his desire and what he's up to. And so when we, when we get to these details and we, and we start to see these, these stories and things that happen and, and we start to question, God, who are you? What, what are you doing right now? I want us to remember who God tells us that he is. And I don't think there's a better passage in all of scripture, a better verse in all of scripture that we can go back to than 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 where it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. In other words, just when you think that God couldn't possibly be doing something good or that, that I can't possibly understand what God is doing, he says, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's heart this is his desire, and he tells us that he doesn't want anybody to perish, that his desire is that all people would come to know him and find life in his name. 
That's who he is. That's what he wants. And so when we come to, to these moments where we, we have a, a hard time understanding, God, how, how are you at work in this? What are you doing? Understand that this is his plan. This is his purpose. And while it's difficult for us to figure out, to make the connections, know that God is in control and this is what he's after. So when he does something like commission this violence against a city and we struggle to, to reconcile that, know that this is the God who is at work drawing people to himself, desiring that none should perish, but all should come to know him and find salvation. And so with that, I invite you to turn to your, to your Bibles to our passage in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And so this is continuing in our series by faith where we're looking at these these heroes of the faith. We affectionately call this chapter the Faith Hall of Fame. And I think it would be really helpful if today, and, and you can close your eyes if it helps, but, uh, but if you would imagine that you are actually walking into a physical building, a hall of fame, with these monuments and these, these statues and, and, and things to memorialize these people. And, and as we've seen so far, you'd be, you'd be walking into this hallway and you'd start seeing these people and the titles that they're given and the things that they are known for. You'd see people like Abel, the man of sacrifice, Noah, the ark builder, Abraham and Sarah, the father and mother of Israel, God's people. You'd see Joseph and Moses, princes in Egypt who leveraged their power and influence for God's purpose. And then... We come to this person in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute. The prostitute. Among all of these people, we have Rahab, the prostitute. And surely, even if you've grown up reading the Bible and you know who Rahab is, even in that context, surely it's still strange to see her there. Her name and that title, among all of these heroes of the faith, we have Rahab, the prostitute. And it says that Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so we, we see that God manages to use this prostitute named Rahab among all these other great heroes of the faith. And for me, at least, when I read that, it's easy for me to ask, God, how are you going to use a prostitute? How can you use someone like that? And so let's look closer at Rahab's story and we're gonna see what happened. Again, these are during the events of our story last week in Jericho. So if you'll go back to Joshua chapter two towards the beginning of your Bibles. And so just prior to Joshua moving in and leading the people to, to march around Jericho and God to take down those walls and they overtake Jericho. Just prior to those events, Joshua knows that's our next campaign. We're gonna go into Jericho. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make plans. I'm gonna send spies to check this out. I wanna see where we're headed. I wanna see what we're up against. So he sends two spies into Jericho to investigate. Now these two spies go into Jericho and they stay at a house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now again, we have something I think unexpected happen here. Because what we're looking at is two men in service to God, soldiers in his army, going in on his mission into this city. And where do they stay? They stay with a prostitute. And, and, and 
that, that seems strange. Why would these men serving God, doing what he's sent them to do, stay with a prostitute? Well, there's at least a couple of practical reasons, and then, as we'll see, there's a theological reason as well. But practically speaking, why stay with a prostitute? Well, if you are a soldier in a foreign army and you're going into enemy territory, then you're putting yourself at risk. And if you go in there and they find out you're there, your, your life is at risk and you want to be able to make a quick getaway. And so if you want to make a quick getaway, where do you want to be? You want to be close to the edge of the city. You want to be close to those city walls. So all you got to do is jump over and you're gone. Well, who lives near the edge of the city? Well, it'd be the marginalized, those who are socially and, and of course now physically on the margins of society that live on the edges of the city. And so Rahab as a prostitute would very likely have lived up against or even in the city walls. And so it made sense to stay somewhere like that. Another reason it made sense is that if you are going into this foreign city and you're going to be noticed as a foreigner, people are going to look at you and go, wait, you, you're not from here. Well, then you'd at least want to blend in with the other foreigners, right? You don't want to raise too much suspicion. So you, you want to look like all the other foreigners. And what do they normally do? Where do those people normally go? Well, they normally visit the prostitutes. And so it would make sense for them to, as part of their disguise, just go and stay at her house. But again, I think there's a, an even more important theological reason that we will see. But as we move ahead, and, and I'm, I'm not going to read every verse in this story, verse by verse. I'll summarize at times and read verses at times. But as we move ahead, uh, we see in the following verses, verses 6 and 7, this is where we see Rahab's character for the first time. This is where we get a look at who Rahab is. Because what happens is the king in Jericho finds out that there are spies in his city, and he sends his men because he wants to take care of them. He wants to take them out. They are a threat. And so he wants to go find these people and, and very likely kill them. And so he sends his men looking for them and they go around house to house and they're, they're looking for these spies and they get to Rahab's house. They come to Rahab's house and they say, hey, are these spies here with you? And we see what Rahab does because she lies to the king's men and says they're not here. And she hides them on her roof out of sight. And so I just, I'm doing the math here, and here's what I've got on Rahab so far. She's a prostitute, which when we think about the clear teaching of the Bible and, and, and the sexual ethic of the Bible, that, that the Bible says that all sexual activity with a person that you are not married to is sin, well, Rahab as a prostitute has a lifestyle of sin. Not just a lifestyle, but she gets paid to do it. She's a professional sinner in that regard, right? Like, that's, that's big, okay? So we've got, she's a prostitute. Then we have, she's lying. She's, and we're like, okay, well, lying's supposed to be wrong, but, but now we've got her lying. And then she's, she's not only lying, but she's lying to her authorities. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 that we're to submit to ruling authorities, and, and she's not doing that here. So everything we see of Rahab so far is a strike against her. And so again, I ask God, how are you going to use this prostitute? Well, I think it's important for us to understand her reasoning. And so we're gonna see her reasoning in, in verses 10 through 12, where she tells the men exactly why she did this. And she tells them, beginning in verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. 
and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. As Joe Cook would say, that'll preach. Rahab's got it down, and she goes on to say, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. So why did Rahab lie? She lied to protect these spies, but why protect them? What was she doing? Well, she says, we've heard about what God's doing. And there's a, there's a lot of very interesting things going on in Rahab's words here. First is that she says, we have heard what's going on, implicating all of Jericho, that everybody here knows what's going on. And so it's easy for us in a, moment, in a situation like this to go, God, these people are just like innocent. They don't know who you are. They don't know about you. And you're just moving through with your army and you're gonna take them out. That doesn't seem fair. And what we have here is they knew very well what was going on. Rahab says that we in Jericho, we know what God's doing out there. Furthermore, we know who God is. And so now we have all the people in Jericho very likely know exactly what's coming. And they have a choice. And we see the choice that Rahab makes. But another interesting note about this is I was preparing my, my lesson and, and I, was, I was looking at my notes and, the, and my wife walked by and she saw them and, and she, she made a comment. She goes, isn't it interesting how Rahab probably heard this. And I stopped for a second and I thought, well, what do you, what do you mean? And she goes, well, think about it. Rah Rahab is a prostitute. And, and so who's she talking to? How is she going to find this out? Would be, it'd be her patrons. It's the people paying for her services. And, and I had to really sit on that for a few minutes and just think like, that's incredible. That, that I think about Rahab the prostitute and we've got this woman in, in a, a pagan culture, so, so basically a pagan prostitute. And I, it's hard to imagine somebody who is further outside of God's reach than that. And you go, God, how are you going to reach Rahab the prostitute? And God says, through her work. I'll reach her through the very people that are paying for her sin. That's what I'll do. And I think how incredible that that's how God can reach people. And furthermore, that this is the significance of a testimony. That this, as Christians, we believe in the value of a testimony that we should tell people about our lives and what God is doing in our lives. Why? For this purpose right here. So that other people will hear about it, will see what God is doing in our lives and they'll know who he is. And for Israel, as they live out this story, and, and God works through their lives, there are other people around them who wouldn't know God otherwise, and God is telling them who he is through the, their testimony. And so Rahab believed in who God is because of what she'd heard about in Israel's story. And that is precisely the point of God establishing a relationship with Israel was to tell everyone else about who he was. This is his plan perfectly playing out. And so again, we come back to the question, was it wrong of Rahab to lie? The Bible says, don't bear false witness. 
Paul says, submit to governing authorities. You know, some theologians argue that Rahab's lie was sin because lying is always a sin. But I am, I am convinced that Rahab's lie was not sin, that it was the right thing to do. And I'll give you two reasons why. The first is that what Rahab was doing and the reason for her lie was to preserve life. That Rahab was making a moral judgment whether or not to lie and protect life or to submit to the king and his men. She made a moral judgment and said, I'm going to preserve life here. And we have on multiple occasions stories of Jesus in the New Testament healing on the Sabbath. And, and so there was a law that said you don't work on the Sabbath and to heal on the Sabbath was considered a work. And so these legalistic Pharisees, they confront Jesus and say, Jesus, you're, you're breaking the law here. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and yet you're healing these people. And Jesus' response is basically that the preservation of innocent life should take priority over piety. Now, I want to be clear. I, this is not license for us to say that any law that makes it difficult for us to love people or value people, now we can just throw it away because it's more important to love people. Because Jesus is making a moral judgment here as well. And, and this isn't license for us to just say anytime a law makes it difficult for us to love people that we can throw it out. But this was about prioritizing life protecting people, healing people who are suffering and sick and prioritizing that over this piety. It's the same moral reasoning that caused Christians in Germany in the 1930s and 40s to lie to the Nazi soldiers who were coming and hunting those Jewish children and families that they might have been hiding in their homes. And I don't think any of us have a problem with that. I don't think any of us look at that and we're like, ooh, you shouldn't lie to Hitler. I mean, really, like, no, I think we're pretty okay with that. I think all of us recognize that that was probably the right thing to do. And that's exactly what Rahab is doing here. But here's the second reason why I think that was the right thing for her, is that this is the very thing that made her famous. It's the reason that she's in the Bible. And, and, it says that she gave warm welcome to the spies, but we couldn't say, well, yeah, that was just about opening her home and feeding them. Because if all she did was open her home and feed them, and then the king's men come, and they say, are they here? And she's like, actually, they are. I can't lie. They're right here. Then they're going to die, and this story ends right here, and she's not in the Bible. And so she's here in the scriptures because she lied. God doesn't work in spite of Rahab. He works through her. And so what was the outcome? What happened to her? Well, we see there in, in Joshua 2, verses 18 and 19, we see the response of the spies, what they tell her in response. And they say, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So they tell her, because of your faith, because of your trusting in God, we're going to give you a sign of that trust. And you're going to put that sign of trust on your house. And then when the destruction comes to this city, your house will be protected. And if that sounds familiar to you, because maybe you're, you've read some of these Old Testament accounts or you remember the story in Exodus, it should sound familiar because it's a callback to Passover. 
which happened when God told Israel that when they were slaves in Egypt and the final plague that he was going to use to release Pharaoh's grip on his people was the plague of the death of the firstborn son in all of Egypt. But God didn't want people to die there. He didn't want that to happen to people. So he said, here's the thing. In order to not experience this plague, all you need to do is trust me and as a sign of that trust, take the blood of a lamb and put it on your door. And when the angel of the Lord comes, he'll see that sign of trust and it'll offer protection to you and your household and he will pass over you. Rahab, you get to experience the Passover, not even a a child of Israel, an outsider. And here she is given the opportunity to experience Passover. And so when the men come back and the army comes back in Joshua chapter six, we see beginning in verse 21, where it says, then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And here it is again this difficult moment for us to say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And I just, we could unpack this single verse for hours and understand more and more about what's going on here, but I'd encourage you to just hold tight to that Second Peter chapter three verse, to remember that God, you have said that your desire is that none should perish and all would come to know you. And I believe God will give everyone the opportunity to know him. And, and so here we have him send the army through and, and, and destroy the city. And it says in verse 22, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside of the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she, has, because she hid the messengers whom Josh, Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Me and Josh are on good terms where I can use that name. Um, the, The gospel in Rahab's story is so clear here. God is telling us his gospel in Rahab's story. And it's beautiful because sin puts us in a path of destruction. You see, God in his holiness is opposed to sin. In his holiness, his perfection, that is what will allow him to one day cleanse the world of sin. That we who are in sin, we look around at this world, it's broken and they're suffering and we go, God, you've got to put an end to this. You need to end sin and suffering. And God says, I'm going to do that. And my holiness is how I'm going to do it. But that holiness, it puts everyone who is in sin in that path of destruction. And so whether it's a flood, whether it's the collapsing Red Sea, or it's the Israelite army, we see God in these accounts telling us over and over again throughout the scriptures that one day he will cleanse the world of all sin once and for all. But here's the best part, is he provides a way out. 
He provides a way for all of us who are in sin and thus in that path of destruction. He provides a way out. He wants to bring us all into his family. He wants to cleanse us of sin, to remove us from that path, to allow us to, once he has destroyed all sin and made this world new, to inhabit that world with him forever. That's what he wants to give us. And all it takes is faith. To simply trust that he provides a way to redeem us. And Rahab, she had that faith. And her redemption started with trust in God. It ultimately led to something that we see in Matthew chapter 1. See, Rahab is mentioned not only here in the Old Testament, but three times in the New Testament. She's mentioned in our Hebrews passage. She's mentioned in the book of James. And she's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. And what happened to Rahab after she was saved there in Jericho is that she had a family. And a few generations later, one of her descendants was a man by the name of David. And then generations after that, a man named Jesus. Rahab, in Matthew chapter 1, is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. And guess what? It's the only time she's not Rahab the prostitute. She is now Rahab the redeemed. And she's a part of what God is doing to save everyone. That he is offering this opportunity for all to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and thus to be pulled out of that path of his destruction to cleanse the world of sin, to live with him forever. That's what he is offering us. And God can redeem Rahab the prostitute which means he can redeem you and me too. And if you haven't trusted that he's given you that opportunity, that he's given all of us the chance to simply trust in him and what he did on the cross, then I would encourage you to do that. That, that you can simply trust that, God, all you've, all you've asked of me is to just trust that you provide a way a way to have eternal life with him. But whether you've never trusted that or you trusted that a long time ago, this passage has a lot to say to each of us. And so I would start with this. It's first that God works in our lives so that we can show others who he is. God works in each of our lives, not just for us, but for the people around us. And you look at how Rahab, she looked at Israel and their story, and she's not impressed with Israel and their army. What she is impressed with is the God who's saving them and protecting them and leading them. And the aim of our lives should not be to point others to our own goodness. And yet we live in a world, we're surrounded by people, we fall into this ourselves all the time, where we're living to impress others with ourselves that we want other people to see our goodness. We want them to see our humor. We want them to see beauty. We want them to see popularity, power. We want other people to be impressed with us. But as Christians, as Christians, we have a different calling. Our lives should not be about pointing others to ourselves, but to our God. And second, we see that God loves the outcast and the forgotten. God loves those who, who are on the margins of society. Prostitutes throughout history were not looked upon with favor. And yet, one of the key themes of Scripture 
is God taking unexpected people, people that we would underestimate and using them for things of eternal significance. It's why Jesus was born in a manger and not a palace. And and the reason is simple, because God doesn't want there to be any mistake that when he's at work, it might be because that person is just that good. He wants us to recognize that what he's doing is by his own power. And so he works in unexpected places. He loves the outcast and the forgotten. And faith, faith moves us to place God in higher authority than any human being. Faith can play out in a lot of different ways. What does it mean to trust God? The answer to that can can mean a lot of different things in different situations. And for Rahab, what it meant was when these human authorities come to her and she understands something is required of her, she's going to place a higher authority on God in that moment. That she's gonna trust God over submitting to these authorities. She recognized this and gave God proper authority. And anytime we read the scriptures, I think think one of the most helpful things that we can do, whether it's here corporately together or you're at home doing this by yourself, I think one of the best things for us to do, one of the things that we are supposed to do is to turn the scriptures around as a mirror to ourselves and ask the question, God, what are you you saying about me? Because we've read what what God is telling us about him, but now what, what is he saying about us? What is he calling us to do? What is he calling us to examine in our own lives? And so I think there are some really helpful questions that we can ask of ourselves. The first is, how does your life and testimony point others to God? Because I think it's really easy for us to live our lives in such a way that we're leaving God out of the story. To tell our story and forget to include what God is doing or to acknowledge what God is doing. It's even harder when we're not walking with God. And yet as Christians, our stories should point others to the love and the goodness of God. So how is your life doing that right now? I think it also also challenges us with where where do you doubt God's power and the weakness of people? Where do you doubt God's ability to use a person? And and this can come in a couple different forms. First, it can come in the form of self-doubt, that maybe you look in the mirror and you go, I'm a nobody. How's he gonna use me? Or, or I am, man, I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm a bad one. And so I, I really don't know, God, how, how are you going to use me? But this can also take the form of doubting other people. And we might look upon someone else, look down on them, and we wonder, God, yeah, surely you can't use that person. And yet God used Rahab the prostitute And I wonder how many times we look at people around us or we look at ourselves and we give them the same sort of title as Rahab the prostitute. God, how can you use the addict? How can you use the liar? How can you use the cheater? How can you use the thief? God, how are you gonna use that person? How are you gonna use me? So where do you doubt God's power to work in human weakness? Because that's what he's doing. He's doing it all the time, and he wants to do it in your life and in mine. And then finally, where is your faith challenged by your fear of people? See, Rahab had that opportunity to submit to that fear, to the authority of people, and to not obey God, to not do what he was was calling her to do or would have wanted her to do. And I think, thankfully for us, 
living in America today, I, I think situations where our government will compel us to disobey God are, are fairly rare compared to other places in the world. I, I think they happen. And one example that comes to my mind is uh, not long ago, there was an issue of, of taxpayer-funded abortion that, that came to the forefront. And, and there were Christians who stood up against that and said, we don't believe uh, that God wants that. We think that's contrary to God's will and design, and, and we don't want to partake in that. And so they stood up against governing authorities in that way. And I think that was the right thing to do. And I think it's worth asking, are there times, are there situations where a human government might compel me to disobey God? But I think a lot more common than government or political pressure, social pressure. I think, I think that there is social pressure on all of us that challenges us, calls us to disobey God. And I'm gonna say this, I, I think it happens at every age. I'm not excluding anybody from this. I think at every age, people experience this kind of pressure. But I actually do think the younger you are, the more prevalent and powerful this pressure is. I think young people are up against this pressure all the time. And one of the examples that comes to my mind is that here in our church, when we're gathered here or in any church where, where people are gathered, it's easy for us to recognize God's design for something like sex. That in the scriptures, we get this clear sexual ethic about how God has designed it, what he's designed it for, and then what he doesn't want us to do. And I think as Christians, when we're gathered together, that's easier for us to agree on and, and to say, I, yeah, I'm gonna submit that part of my life to him. But then when we're outside of these walls and we might feel more alone and isolated or we're online and, and we're engaging with the world around us, that as I, 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 the way I think of it is they are outside of the church and they seem to be running in the opposite direction of what God calls us to do. Like trying to invent new ways to rebel against God's design for this. And I think that the world puts a lot of pressure on us, and I think especially young people, to come and live according to that standard. And it puts this pressure on us because of social pressure, because of human authority, to disobey God. And I think it's a very difficult thing to confront, but it's worth asking for all of us, God, where am I challenged with this? Where do I experience the pressure to submit to social and, and, and human authority rather than you? Rahab's story offers us a lot, but, but I think none more important than the fact that God, God works in unexpected ways through unexpected people. That he can redeem a prostitute, he can redeem you and me. And that what he wants to do in your life is work even in the midst of your own weakness and in mine. Because what he is about is drawing all people to himself to find life in his name. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.